you, 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 you give us a hard time for being white, being American, and being in control. I did more for our black population than anybody other than Abraham Lincoln, okay? And nobody's even close. If you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black, it's our God. Jesus Christ has turned the tables on you. Amen. Victory. I hear a sound of an abundance of rain. I hear a sound of victory. The Lord says it is done. I bet he can't wait to go home and be, become a black man again. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Hey, good people. How y'all doing out there? Here we go. Another week, another podcast. It's your host with the most, Daniel White Hodge here with Profane Faith. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we have been uh, doing a series, a uh, three-week series, three-part series on Latinx faith leaders uh, and theologians, um, faith really, faith and theology influencers, the terminology I used, and um, it's been great. Hopefully, y'all have enjoyed it. If this is your first time getting in, I highly recommend going back and listening to the previous episodes Reverend Warner Ramirez was first. Uh, Pastor Myra and Macido Nolan was last week. Uh, and this week, um, I'm going to be introducing my guest, Key Martinez. They are amazing. They're going to blow your socks off. So, um, uh, and again, these are just three different perspectives on looking at faith and theology in the Latinx context. Um, and of course, of course, of course, as, as a researcher, this is not a um you know a conclusive like these are the only three perspectives no this is of course not this is this is just a way of looking at some influencers that are out there doing some amazing stuff that i found unique uh and a very a, a great way of looking forward and engaging with faith in different contexts um i'll introduce key here in a minute but they have been literally all over the world um, and their perspective on things is, is phenomenal as you will see. Um, but yeah, in the midst of all that, um, there's been a lot going on. There has been a lot going on. It always feels like this. It feels like the racial hatred, uh, to black, brown and AAPI bodies, uh, just has been stepping up. And a lot of that is in result to a lot of stuff we've been talking about here on the show, right? Uh, demographic changes, um, political changes, uh, the rise of technology, um, rise of disinformation and fake news. Um, but you know, the it, last couple of weeks have, have been, have been very intense with, uh, another killing as most of you, I'm sure know of a black body, uh, in the twin cities. Um, you know, and I don't know. I mean, it just seems like when these things come out, it, and they're going to continue to come out. Um, you know, it's just, it feels like we see the rash of people who say, yeah, but he was, you know, he was, uh, 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 you know, he had the worn out. Oh, how come he didn't stop? Or how come he, there's always something there. But I'm always just like, look, Popo know exactly how to take somebody 
and to disarm somebody without violently doing so. They do it all the time with mass shooters who they know are armed, <laughs> who they know are, are willing to take life. But yet those those uh, those folks seem to just come in unscathed, which, uh, you know, uh, it's a lot there and don't have time to get into that. But I'm pretty sure you know exactly what I'm talking about, particularly with, you know, white men, white cishet men. Um, so, I, you know, I. I, I struggle. I mean, I, and he's like, what else is there to say? I've done special episodes on this. I've talked about this. I've written about this. Um, I've had guests on that have, you know, been experts. It seems like there are folks who know what to do that needs to be done. But what is actually changing? What is actually going to move, as they say, the needle forward as it pertains to uh, policing uh, in, in the country? What is what is actually going to um, what what are the elements of defunding the police? I mean, I think just the connotation, though, of that, you know, does it need to be rebranded? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I, in terms of that, I do know that something has to change. I mean, I'm just I'm wondering, like, how much can a system take um, with before the system itself or the people themselves just say, you know what? Enough is enough. Um, and so, you know, I want to hope. In the old saying, right, that the, the arc of justice is long, but it takes, you know, a while to bend. I just feel like we just keep returning uh, to the same conversation every, you know, few months. Um, and it's not even a few years anymore. It used to be like, oh, every once or two years, like, oh, OK, here we go. You know, and I also get the pundits that say, you know, hey, this is just media blowing it out of proportion. Of course, they're going to highlight this. It makes for good news. It makes for ratings. Um, yes, there is that element, right? Um, you know, folks who just say that, you know, the, the amount of black people shot by police in comparison is not that big. Um, yeah, I don't. Well, first and foremost, I don't believe that nonsense. I think uh, folks who try to contend that aren't necessarily looking at um the equation properly um there was another note that came out i think in one of the i think it was in um i'm trying to remember where it was it showed up in my feed and i was just like well of course uh they it was an interview i think i think it was huff post who was saying that they had an interview uh with one it was one of the one of the proud boys or one of the other white militia gangs who said you know we basically have you know hundreds thousands of, of folks in law enforcement right that are that are with us and i'm like well, of course we've been knowing that <laughs> we've been knowing that we don't need uh we don't need a review we don't need a damn uh you know a um report just to, to to tell us that uh so you know we have you know a major right terrorist threat can you imagine um you know if somebody like al-qaeda was saying oh we have plenty of folks in in uh, the military right now I can tell you that right now, we got plenty of folks in, you know, in, in all forms and fashions of the, I, you know, it just, again, those are the type of things, right? That when you have this constant assault, uh, honestly, it just makes a brother want to just leave the country, um, and get the hell out. Cause, um, you know, I, I don't see things changing anytime soon. In fact, I see them getting worse, uh, culminating in some kind of capstone event that maybe that forces people to, be like, whoa, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. I don't know. Either that or it's got to be something supernatural that occurs that gets people to say, oh, man, um, we got to we got to we got to change this this course. Um, 
But I don't know. People have been holding uh, people been holding out for that for a long time too, right? You got the toxicity that that runs into that. Let's just pray about it. Thoughts and prayers, like I've said before on this show, and and other activists have said as well, right? It's like the U.S. never, and I know that's a generalized state, but it never. You know, says to its its enemies, right, that, oh, we're going to do a sit-in or we're going to march for justice and be peaceful. No, they launch missiles. They launch planes. Uh, they send troops in to violently um, enforce whatever it is they're trying to enforce. Um, so, you know, that idea of, oh, let's just be peaceful. How long do you expect the people in the Twin Cities to be peaceful when this has been a reoccurring thing? Um you know, and cops saying that they going for their taser um, and, you know, versus their gun. I mean, come on. Uh, you even got Pat Robertson, you know, tripping on that. Right. I don't know if y'all saw that clip with Pat Robertson talking about, you know, how, you know, it was it, it, it was wrong that this had happened. And then how can a cop confuse their taser gun versus the real gun? I thought that was fascinating. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you know, just just look it up. It's out there. Which <laughs> I'm just like, look, don't get it twisted. Pat Robertson is no ally whatsoever. But it was funny to see. It was funny to see. At any rate. Those are some of the questions I've been wrestling with. Uh, I've I've stayed off social media. Uh, I forced myself uh, this last Friday, if you're listening in real time, um, uh, this last Friday, just to stay off social media and oh, really break from it. I don't know. I just, I, I don't find myself being in a good space when I'm on it too much. I don't find myself being better, being as they, you know, as my old mentor used to say, being edified if you will, uh, with that. So I, I just, this is just for me. I ain't trying to tell y'all what to do. This is just for me. For me, I pulled back and it's been, it's been good. It's been interesting. I think just to take note of when I'm on my device, how many times I want to go and engage with something on social media, whether it's just mindlessly scrolling, you know, and then try, then trying to fill that with something else this weekend. I felt really accomplished because I was able to, I wanted to get my lawnmower tune up. I did that. Um, I wanted to get my fertilizer on. It was time to do that. My first round of fertilizer, I did, I did that. Um, we had two planters in the back, you know, planter boxes that were just old and crusty. Tore them out, put some new ones in, got that done. So I felt like I got a lot of stuff done this weekend. Um, my body's feeling it. As you know, once you hit 40, man, it's like, especially once you pass 45, right? It's like, oh my gosh, it's like Advil is your best friend right you just keep it next to your bed <laughs> um but yeah man i mean i think that for me is 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 something that um i it's like this it social media is here to stay it's not going anywhere um but for me as i've seen it and just trying to nuance it uh, i said this is the beginning of this season right like to the me being off twitter has helped need to rethink what am I doing right especially when you get into the weeds of certain things comments and replying and just noticing my own blood pressure right going up my my angst I, I always feel the angst in my gut into my growing um and that's when I know like okay all right whoo deep breaths deep breaths let me think through this um so yeah I, I those are just some things that I notice and I notice my productivity and not that productivity is the end-all be-all for things no i'm not saying that but for me in this weekend looking at things i was like wow this was a great weekend you know plus it was nice outside just getting out 
Oh man, you know, when you're in the Midwest, I take all them sunny days I took for granted when I lived in SoCal or just California in general. <laughs> At any rate, fam, I hope y'all are doing well. I hope you have some space to vent if you're a person of color, especially mourning the death and grieving the death of these new black bodies that are out there. Uh, today, it sounded like the, uh, at least, again, as we're, if you're listening in real time at the at the airing recording of this podcast, um, you know, the defense and the, uh, the prosecution were entering uh, final statements uh, in the Derek Chauvin case in the murder of George Floyd. So we'll see. We'll see what comes of that. In the meantime, here we are, third week Latinx theology and faith influencers Key Martinez, uh, they, them, pronouns, believes in building strong, inclusive communities and organizations that are transformative for their members and the world. I'm telling you, Key is a coach and facilitator for anti-oppression of both and uh, based in New York City in the areas of identity, exploration, and somatics. Let me just spell that because sometimes we talk about semantics. No, somatics, S-O-M-A-T-I-C-S. He has been a student of sexological semantics for the past three years and is currently earning certification in embodiment, sex coaching, and somatic sexological bodywork. As a somatic practitioner, they offer structured support for people's connection to their body. I've talked a lot about that on this show, right? Their pleasure and all aspects of life. Born and raised a, a city kid here in Chicago, Key holds a degree in sociology from Loyola University, Chicago. Key is personally, or currently, excuse me, in the process of launching a community centered uh, around embodiment, social justice, and resilient resilience through pressure or pleasure. Pressure, resilience through pleasure. Uh, it will include somatic sex education, skill building, uh, and the sharing of stories and experiences. It's a place to go talk about the challenges, questions, and joys of life from the embodied perspective. I love that. Key's going to get into that here in a second, but I love that. With a background in leadership development and social research, Key creates storytelling spaces to support people to learn, be encouraged, and see real change in their life. Um, I've known Key now for almost about the almost amount of time that I've been living here in Chicago. I met them. Uh, they were doing a study and and uh, on some things, and they wanted to get some, some input, and I've just remained... In contact, I think their experience has been just phenomenal. And I was like, it's, it's time for me to get you on the show. So I reached out to them um, and they said, yes, of course, let's do this. And we have this conversation that y'all get to benefit from. So enjoy this. Hope you enjoyed the, um, the three weeks. Again, if you haven't enjoyed or if you haven't listened, excuse me, uh, go back and check out the other two weeks uh, and see uh, see what you think. All right. And hit, hit, hit a brother back. Tell a brother what you think. All right, y'all stay safe. Stay up. We'll talk soon. Cool. Well, folks, welcome back to another episode of Profane Face. I'm here with Key, good friend of mine. Uh, we've known each other now, what, how long? Because we met at North Park? Yeah, that was like a decade ago. I know. It's hard <laughs> to believe. You, uh, you've had a lot of uh, changes and stuff going on. Well, for the listeners... Um, Tell a little bit about, you know, what's been happening from birth to now. Okay. Break it down a little bit. Birth to now. Wow. How many minutes do I have? Hey, you take, you, you go in, you you break it down. You... Sure. All right. I'll try and summarize. Let's see. I was born and raised in Chicago. I am on my mother's side. I am second generation American. On my father's side, I'm first generation. My mother's Greek. 
and my father is Mexican. And, oh, yeah, what do I tell you? Let's see. Um, I was not raised, I was actually baptized Catholic. Okay. You, you know, Mexican. And then I was raised sort of the first few years without anything. My mom, they, they split. I was raised by a single mom, and she wasn't really, really into religion. But then my grandmother came into the picture. So when I was seven years old, maybe eight, we started going to Greek Orthodox Church. And oh, wow. That was a very regular, yes, until I was a teenager and rebelled and said, I, you know, the sit, stand, obey, dress right, keep your hands folded, stay quiet. <laughs> this was too much. And, and I didn't understand what was going on. I think that's sure. part of it. Nobody explained the beliefs to me. It was more just a, a code of conduct that I had to adhere to that really made no sense. Um, but then in, it was in high school that I came to the... Well, I think it was a non-denominational church. It was a Latinx non-denominational, probably more Pentecostal-leaning, sort of like Friday hangouts type of church, you know, for teenagers. Um, and that was that was a significant shift in my life. It really brought in community and love and belonging in a way that I really, really needed at the time. And I didn't stick with it, but in college I came back. So in the beginning of college, same thing. It was sort of an invitation into belonging, and I joined, um, I think it was InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at the time. Okay. And I got really involved, and then I joined a church based on the people that I had met there inviting me in, and I got really involved. <laughs> like, I've always had a passion, I think, for community. I mean, I grew up, my father gave me 55 first cousins alone, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, just being surrounded by people and how do we live together and take care of one another. And so I was really drawn to the church for that reason. And I was on the path to becoming a community life pastor. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. 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 So by the time I was graduating in college, I wrote my I was I studied sociology in undergrad. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote my thesis on women in senior and vision casting leadership in the evangelical church. And I defined evangelical, you know, I think the only two organizations that I had in that, in that study at that time were the Vineyard and um, Swedish, Swedish Covenant. Swedish, yeah. Yeah, or the Covenant, the Covenant Church. So, Covenant in Evangelical, am I saying that right? Um, and that was, yeah, that was kind of where I had my eyes was, um, leadership in the church because I had been so involved for those those years and I was um, growing quickly, being invited into all kinds of responsibility and really loved it, really loved that opportunity to be so boldly connecting with the spiritual and with people and just call that a life. So I really, I really, that was a very powerful time. Now I ended up leaving the church that I was in at that time and that I had been deeply involved with for like for seven years or something um, because of their struggles. And I, this is where you and I have a lot of intersection where we spent time. You were mentoring me at the time. I did. I was. I wanted to do a study for them. I remember. Their, I remember that on, the, on their capacity yeah. to meet the needs of their members of color. I felt at the time um, I had been learning a lot and I was learning you know, about white cultural dominance. And I was finding or feeling that my church really didn't understand the needs of its people of color and it didn't, um, 
it certainly didn't meet me in those aspects of myself. And so I was very suspicious. And I started that study and it, it was, uh, it was rough. It was really rough. <laughs> Part of it was, you know, I was getting a blend of like discouraging information and also people being unclear themselves mm -hmm. about what they're allowed to want and need in a space um, dominated by, you know, white culture and white leadership and um, where they're also wanting to get along, right, and have unity. So I, um, at the time I was, it was my second time interning for them and they, they really had a hard time hearing me say what I was, what I was noticing and, and believing me and yeah, I ended up just, I, I took a job, I think at the time I wasn't employed. Mm -hmm. So I took it, I took a job and I kind of just moved on that way. Um, and that was really hard. I lost, you know, a lot of relationships. I had to leave behind a lot of relationships because for the ways that I felt not seen in this particular thing, I ended up joining a, a covenant church that was very focused on social justice, sort of swinging into this other, mm -hmm. like, I found I found some people that understood racial justice, understood this issue. Um, but then at the time, what they didn't understand that I really valued was emotional health. Mm. So how do we be an emotionally healthy church, have emotionally healthy spirituality, um, really care about people's mental health, really care about how we take care of one another, um, especially those of us who are um, marginalized or more uh, susceptible or who have been traumatized. How do we make sure that we don't hurt them by the ways that we preach even like a stop preaching style or the way that we uh, create community and things like that. So I felt I was there for a couple of years or a few years and I tried to make it work, but then that didn't work. And anyway, a lot of things happened in my personal life too. And then I moved out to LA to work with a, um, a, a social impact community. Okay. It was really amazing. It was really um, a wonderful community I had been a part of for a few years at that time, I think three or four when I got the job. Um, and what they did is they helped folks who want to be social entrepreneurs, so starting businesses that have a mission at the heart of it that makes profit and uh, people kind of equal, uh, of equal importance, you know, mission being really, really up there and how they prioritize things. And then, um, and then helping people who are in the nonprofit space to be more innovative, more cutting edge, kind of come more to the forefront with the ways that they do creativity and building and growing and, um, and really making that change and moving away from older structures. So it was a really wonderful space. I met um, uh, like thousands of amazing people because mm. it was, I was the head of admissions for a fellowship program. And so... I was meeting all these wonderful, talented people who want to change the world all the time, hearing incredible stories about how they intend to do that. And, um, and yeah, and then my, my role as well as admissions was as a facilitator and a trainer. So coming in and doing trainings for them on just mindsets. I did a lot of, I brought in kind of what I had learned in community life in the church and, and taught them about how do you really draw in and rely upon community to help support you in this vision that you're holding? How do you like invite other people into your story as you're building um, so that you can really be supported through the process, but also mindsets. And I talked a lot about the power of things like meditation, the power of really understanding, again, mental health, like what kinds of stories do we tell ourselves that hold us back? Mm. And, yeah. 
Yeah, it was a it was a wonderful that was a wonderful role, but it was also immediately after I had been in the process of a divorce and mm. I burnt out that year. I put Oof. so much work into this job and it was my whole life because I moved out to LA where I basically knew no one. And it was the first time I had ever left Chicago like to to live somewhere else my whole life. And I burnt out by the end of one year there. I just, I had depression. I had to go. And mm. what I chose to do with that, um, a friend had given me the idea, but I think it had always been with me, this desire to to go and, and really spend more time with my roots. And um, so I moved to Mexico where I lived for the next year. I didn't intend to make it a whole year. I thought we'd call it a sabbatical and do it for a month, maybe three um, that stretched out and then that stretched out. And, um, it was really wonderful though, to be out in nature. I, I lived most of that time in the desert in wow. Baja California Sur and with animals, working with horses, training horses and yeah, on the ocean. It was really wonderful. Um, yeah. So I'm, uh, where does that bring us to today? So we're almost there. Let's see. No, this is I, great. I love it. This is, this is right on point. It was very healing. I'll say this about Mexico and my time there. It was extremely healing. One, to be reconnecting with my roots, right? Like to be surrounded by the language that I had actually lost. I had had a, some major loss of that language from the time I was really young and until adulthood where I understood it, but I didn't feel confident speaking. And, and to this day, I'd say I'm still not 100% confident, but but definitely a year in Mexico. <laughs> it was very powerful for supporting me to, to reclaim and then just to learn what I hadn't learned. Um, but then there's this thing about the land and being there and being with the land and being in nature and surrounded by that and also just the simplicity. So I lived in a rural place on a ranch. And so to really strip away all the things that I had built my life with that I thought I needed, the things that, you know, I, I had these definitions of security and, and whatever you might call it. And even just like my schedule, I had always been filling my schedule with, with things to do and people to see and places to go. And then suddenly, I was in places where sometimes I didn't have reception at all, and I certainly didn't have Wi-Fi. Um, and so to just be alone or to be with the people I'm working with and to come back to what's basic, and it's like these relationships and it's taking care of oneself and kind of and being well, you know, just having that simplicity of focus. And it was actually very spiritual for me in Mexico to be in that nature and this, like, really rugged landscape um, where... Yeah, you have to really take care. I mean, I was in the desert. It was very hot, and the ocean's right there, and it's very fierce and all that. And it was just really a powerful time for me of growing in my spirituality different from Christianity. I'm not going to say not not Christian. I don't know that it's not Christian. I'm just going to say that what I had been taught different from this American Christianity, mm -hmm. um, I was learning about seeing more, seeing God in you know, the warmth of the sun and the sense that I was getting of communication from trees and the stars and the animals. Actually, that was a big one. It's like, you know, just the communication. You, If you spend any time around horses um, or even we had donkeys and um, 
at sea turtles. We had a sea turtle program and yeah. And it's just, I felt, I saw God all the time in these beautiful, incredible wild creatures. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was really, really healing for me too, because I think after struggling with those churches and then struggling with a marriage, I did have this question of like, where is God? Like, how do we, how do I do God? How do I do connection to God when? And then I still had that whole like, you know, realizing how colonized American Protestant Christianity had been in my experience, right? And how much it is at large and how it's like conquest and military is like the language is full of that type of stuff. Yeah. And, <laughs> and just realizing like, that's not me. That's not who I want to be. That's not how I want to live. That's not the way I see um, God or love or, you know, progress. And so as, as I'm in my healing journey, how do I, how do I strip that back? And how do I find God without the colonization? How do I find God without and th- and then this goes on and on because I had been married um, to a person who went to seminary and who um, you know wanted to become a pastor and something we really struggled with in our relationship was physical intimacy mm. we were married for over five years and we you know we quote unquote did all the right things we you know, I don't, I don't know how much to say, but our pastor was very proud of us, you know. <laughs> you, you share as much as you feel comfortable with, Keith. <laughs> okay. I just, we, we tried to really um, follow the book as the ways our pastor had, had kind of guided us to mm-hmm. try and, mm-hmm. um, yeah, protect the relationship and protect what was possible within a relationship. So we weren't physical before marriage and mm-hmm. like, like at all, which I'm not saying that's how it's supposed to be done for anybody, but that's what we did. And, but then when we were in our relationship, intimacy was really difficult. And, and then other issues came up too, because um, he was white and had not, neither of us had done, I was in the process from the, from day one in our marriage, I was certainly in the process of, tons of grief um, over internalized racism. And like we both did a racial reconciliation class, racial righteousness and reconciliation class at North Park. The first, I was about to say the first semester we were married, but that's true. The The first first semester semester. we were married. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. We, We took this class together at the seminary and you know, and for me, that had already been a passion because race was another thing I really looked at when I was in undergrad in sociology and started my grad program in sociology. I was, I've always been interested in race as a biracial person. Um, but yeah, we took this class and it was, and it's just, you know, that's what got me started wanting to do that project with my church at the time. And anyway, our hearts were breaking, but differently because, because we had different positions in that, in that and that issue, right? We had different places of struggle. And um, and there was a lot we still didn't understand about our own trauma. I, I want to name that. We had different yeah. trauma. And and some of that had to do, you know, for him, it was being raised in Christianity, purity culture. Mm. And that's a form of trauma. Heck yeah. 
Hell <laughs> yes. Then, yeah, yeah, and he, we didn't know that. Right, right. We, di right. we didn't understand that at all. We right. Thought he, we thought he had been raised right, and I was the one that we had to, like, you know, I had to overcome. <laughs> I had to overcome my non-Christian teenage, and call it, you know, what, my teenage years. Um, <laughs> right. So, so we struggled. We really struggled, and it was really hard to transition from what was more like friendship to, you know, this thing that marriage is supposed to be in the Christian church. It was like beautiful intimacy and um, togetherness and all that. And um, we sought help. We went to counselors. We went to Christian counselors. We went to Christian sex specialists even. We found one of those very expensive and not very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. That's the worst kind, man. <laughs> yep. Yep, and um, <laughs> it was, and it was far away. I mean, I just remember what an investment and what a disappointment. Um, but we tried, and I feel like that's the majority of the time we were married was us fig trying to figure this out. And that leaves me with, at the around the time of our separation, I just continued to do research. I just felt very passionate about understanding what is happening um, with our bodies? What is happening um, with our sense of connection? Why are we just not on the same page? Why can't we get on the same page? Why doesn't this make any sense? Because um, we love each other very much and we care about each other and we want, we both want this to work, but it's not. And I, I was doing some research and I read an article once and it was signed by someone who called themselves a certified sexological body worker. And I remember not knowing what that was at all and saying, well, how do I get one of those? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that is, this person seems very smart and I want them in my life to help me with my issues. And um, anyway, I sought one out. The nearest one was in L.A. at the time. I don't know if there's any in Chicago now, but I was going out to L.A. for this other program, some type of, um, oh, I, I wish I could remember the name now, but it's like a. Christian leadership type thing. Anyway, so I went out, I was going out to LA anyway, so I met up with this this woman who, that was her practice, sexological body work. And it was just incredible. I mean, we only had two in-person sessions and a series of phone calls, but she opened my mind. She taught me so many things about, I mean, just the most basic thing about consent, mm. about how do, how do we make choices about what we actually want? How do we, how do we take, how do we use our agency and take ownership and say, I want this, but I don't want that. Or maybe, maybe my answer is maybe. And, and for now that's a no. And, you know, these kinds of like simple things that you'd think we should know, but we don't. We, we live so much, I think, from a place of should. This should be that way. Yeah. I should be that way. I, I should want intimacy with my partner. I should be excited to engage with that. And, and all that pressure that we place on ourselves about how things ought to be. But we're not asking ourselves, like, what do I really want? Where am I really what is it I'm noticing? And so she brought to me that, that, and then we talked a lot about just the history of where I had even learned about sex, how, what I had learned, what are the messages, how did I come to see it the way I had? And it started me on this path, really, trying to understand this issue much more deeply. And, and what that meant was bringing it to my friends at first, right? Just like conversations with friends. And I remember it was, it was always a, a funny transition into having that conversation you know people are just not having conversations about sex and intimacy enough much at all I feel like our culture this is like Christian aside our culture can be so 
avoidant of this aspect of being human. And, um, yeah, I, 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 be, I became that friend who was always kind of bringing it up and bringing it into conversation. <laughs> if we were in a group, you know, just saying, like, how are things going? What do people notice? What do people... And it was something that consistently I found that people didn't... Um, they didn't, women, let's just say, let's be clear, women didn't seem to be having good experiences or having connective experiences or it wasn't what they would have liked it to be. And I, that just kept happening consistently. I, and I just felt like something's wrong here. This is really strange. But I stuck a pin in that because, again, I was, I was doing social impact. I transitioned into social, this social impact space. And, but I continued in a, in a sort of personal reflective journey and reading books and things like that on my own. Um, and then I, in Mexico, the same thing, it continues to be this reflective journey, but I'm also having the spiritual experience being out in the desert and, and doing work with my hands and finding that healing, finding, mm-hmm. finding some kind of healing in that, um, that I couldn't necessarily explain at the time. And... And then at the end of that year, which would be now 2019, um, I found myself at a crossroads. I did not want to come back to the United States. I didn't want to come back. And I, I think part of it is just what it represented. Part of it was like, it represents all this whole past that I thought I had figured out. I thought I had so many things lined up for me in such a beautiful way. And I had felt a calling. I had felt all these things and had a marriage and it was we did all the right things we did it all right so why did it go so wrong and and I was just scared I was scared to to go back and feel that confusion again <clears throat> so I set myself up to go on another trip somewhere you know other side of the planet um, <laughs> yeah but at the year's end I I'm sitting with this question of like okay okay so I'm on this trip but then what then what like what's next for me um, if I don't want to go back, what is going forward? Mean? What is what is it that's sort of percolating inside me as the next thing? And where's that sense of calling um, that I've been so connected to in the past? Uh, and so this is where I realized, you know, some of what was happening in Mexico was, was trauma healing. Because I, I was having, yeah, just a lot of emotional experiences, you know, even all by myself. And I started remembering things or feeling things that felt very old um, and also feeling them resolve and feeling like my nervous system was changing. I remember that by the end of that time in the desert, my body, the way I breathe, the pace of my breath, the pace of my speech was so different Mm. than from when I moved there. And from when I was living in L.A. And one of the ways I noticed that was just by having conversations with friends and they'd say, you're different. Something's different about you. And it was like, I don't know, but I feel more peace. Hmm. I feel more peace. I feel more at ease. My body has less tension. There's something that's shifted there. And so I remember as I was thinking about what is my what is my journey ahead? What What are the things that I'm feeling called to? Part of it was, I want to understand trauma more. I want to understand it, because I know I have it. I know I've got it. Um, I, I was, you know, I've been hearing about this thing called intergenerational trauma, and I'm like, mm. I know I have that. I know a lot about my family's stories and where they've come from, and this is 
it's not been easy. So I'm, I know I have that, whatever that is at the time. And so I'm, I'm researching and I'm finding, you know, how do I do that? And at the time, oh, I forgot to mention, I had gotten into Colombia for a master's in um, social work and social nice. entrepreneurship. Nice. So it was like a combo degree for folks who want to do you know, maybe more innovative stuff in the space that social work kind of crosses into. And that at the time felt really true. So I applied right before going to Mexico. I got in, I deferred. Um, and then as I'm looking at this new year, I was not sure that I really wanted to move to New York or anywhere and, and start a master's. It just felt like that didn't feel right either. That, that felt like going back, backwards. And so I said, what do I want to do? So this is what led me to back to sexology, back to somatics. And mm. because of some of the things I had learned again in that short time with that, with that somatic body worker, I was, they were still with me. They were still transforming the way I live my life. And so I had this sense of like, maybe there's something there. And I did, I found a program end of December in the, in the UK to start in 2020, in February 2020. So I was a, I was a late applicant, um, but I wrote them a letter and I reached, I called them and I was like, is there any way you can, is there room in, in your program if you would take me? Um, and I got in and All I started. Right. And, and, and part of it was like, if I don't make a career out of this, that's, that's okay. I think there's a lot of learning I personally want to do for myself hmm. in this space, that this crossover between somatics, which is this uh, growing field that looks at the body as a source of information okay. and as, and as uh, the, the location of a lot of our healing of, of um, emotional wounds, uh, including trauma, and the unpacking of kind of what we carry around in the subconscious. Um, so it's a cross between that field, which is growing, and... Um, this inquiry, inquiry into sex and, and, and how it connects with the body and then the mind. Um, so I started that program, been in it for over a year. I'm still in it. I probably okay. have another five months to go. Okay. And that's been a powerful journey all by itself. I mean, you know, most of what the very beginning of the program is, is all about learning about our own process and our own body and our own, um, what we've come to know and what we need to unlearn and how to do that. Um, but also just to get to know your nervous system and how does it work and how does trauma impact it and how do we heal? Um, so wow. it's, it's been incredible. Yeah, it's been incredible. And I, I don't think it's the end. I don't think this program is the end for me, but, um, but it feels like the beginning and I'm really, really excited. That's amazing. Key. I, I'm just sitting here in awe. I'm just, it's, it's, uh, it feels like you've, uh, <laughs> You've entered a, uh, a, a a Jedi Knight. You're like uh, Key Owan <laughs> Kenobi uh, <laughs> in many senses of the word. Um, how then? So I got I got a, a litany of questions, but let me start yes. with this one. Um, how then would you see, in the process that you've been, how do you see God in all this, or how do you define a God? A sense of Either however you want to define it, either divine, quantum faith, you know, that connection to that ethereal, that oftentimes in evangelical Christianity, right? It's 
It's like, oh, well, have a relationship with God and fall in love with, you know, right, purity culture. Like, fall in love with Jesus. Jesus is my boyfriend. Um, I was watching um, uh, The Boondocks. I, I love the boondocks and one episode they were doing a on a they were doing a spoof on tyler perry and you know like cross-dressing and and what that meant and you know and it's like but it was anyway they, they connected it back to jesus but it just sounded awkward but i'm just like well but that's oftentimes how right christianity puts it so i don't know if that's a long explanation to that question if that makes sense yeah no it does absolutely i think again i forgot to mention yeah i forgot to mention a lot of things but we'll just say this i've been working for now almost a year as an as a coach and facilitator for anti-oppression okay all right um because that's also some of what i did in previous work right it's really focus on who are we leaving out with the ways that we do things as we build how do we build with the, the marginalized in mind how do we put them at the center and so i've been doing that for almost a year now and i think about I think about, I bring that comes to mind because I think about my faith and how so much of it was formed through in the Protestant church. Um, but how do I, but the question for me became, how do I decolonize that? How do I decolonize my faith? How do I decolonize and how do I take whiteness out of the center? Hmm. And how do I take Americanness out of the center, right? Like God is not American. <laughs> Jesus is not white. Like how do I take those, these cultural elements and, and peel them back, like peel them out of my faith and then, and find God without them. And I think that, oh, yeah, a, a lot of it's like, stop thinking of God as this individual. That's mm-hmm. part of it. It's like we, we're so deeply individual and we want to, yeah, like you just said, it's like God's just this one figure that we just have to have that one relationship with just the same way you can have a relationship with your mom or not. You can call her or not. And therefore, you know, that individual relationship relies on your individual, um, your actions to sustain it or not as if God's just not there when you're not calling. Um so that's part of it is to take take that out. Um, and I think for me, again, like going back to my roots and going to Mexico and thinking about like God was here before Christianity, uh, far before Christianity. God was here and God, God was not condoning of the violence that mm. Christianity brought with it here. God was not in the, you know, the conquering of these people. That's not... That's not God. So how do we, how do I understand God when God is not violent? When God, that's not the God that, anyway, the God that I was taught, right? We thought, we, we talk so much about like the Old Testament God and then there's, you know, Jesus and the new way and this new, but I felt like if God has always been here, what does that mean? Mm. <laughs> and so... And to understand, like, God doesn't actually rely on us as much as we like, like, our, our, our evangelical faith likes to put in our hands. Like, God is, God is relying on you. Like, it is on you or else these people will perish oh, in hell flames. And it's like, do you really think goodness. God couldn't make it? <laughs> do you really yes. think God couldn't just work it out without you? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Way to put yourself at the center of that. the hero story. <laughs> <laughs> that right there. Whew. Yeah, so with that, just thinking about 
again, it's like as I was seeking healing mm-hmm. and God was meeting me there with things like the ocean, mm. the waves, with like the way the sun hit the desert floor and shone with the ways that the horses and I developed trust, you know, with these these small things, with the way I've watched plants grow or not. Um, I think about, you know, God is everywhere. God is in everything, the imprint. Everything is God's t- touch, really. And, and I, I don't have a, I can't point you to like a book that has this all spelled out. I can't give you a formula. Um, for me, this is a process I'm still, I think it's going to be lifelong, but I'm still in it of like, I also think about Brene Brown and I love her quote. Hmm. I, I, I'm not going to have it verbatim, but she says in her 20 minute famous talk, TED talk um, on the power of vulnerability, where she says, you know, faith used to be this thing where there was mystery and that was beautiful, where God was mystery and we embraced that. Um, and now faith is the, God is X, Y, Z, do steps one through three. We, everything is certain and I know how to do it and how to get at it. And, and essentially, if you think about it, what we're doing in that sense is we're saying, I dominate God. I dominate faith. I'm in charge. I, you know, I'm dominating this situation. I have control over it. I put God in this box and I know how to manage that relationship. I put my my, you know, salvation, if you want to use that word, in this box, and I know how to dominate that situation, and I know I'm going to heaven because I did it right. Whereas, like, actually, I think I'm way more into the idea of embracing God as mystery mm. and saying, I, I cannot dominate God. God will make make that clear. God has made that clear for me in my lifetime in the ways that I tried really hard to be really good and do all the right things. And yet still life was full of uncertainty and mystery. And again, I, there's tons of things I didn't tell you about. How my health went south during my marriage, how all sorts of stuff happened oh, there. And yeah, and so, and a lot just was not in my control as much as we would like to pray it away and right. learn, you know, whatever it is right. we, we try to do to manage and control. But how do you strip away dominance and the belief that like humans are really at the center? I think that's part of it. Part of my faith too was like developing a vulnerability to toward God that says, "I'm only human. I'm not at the center of everything. The story is much bigger than me, and it's mysterious. And God is mystery, and that's good." Um. Ooh. So yeah, I don't. I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah. It starts to for my uh, for me, but. That feels that felt important to share. No, absolutely. Yeah, I, because I think so often, so often, at least as I've found in my own process of deconstructing, right? What, where, what did I learn? You talk about right, like how did you first learn? You know, as as a man, right? How did I first learn about God theologically? And again, that that Inuit of right. God is, you know, like you said, well, from a ministry perspective, right? Because that was, you know, pretty much what I went into. And that's what I would always hear. God needs you. God is counting on you to go and save these souls. And oh, my gosh, I think the pressure and the angst that gets put on you. um, I'll speak for myself. You know, the 
the sense of pressure, the sense of drive, even to the point of exhaustion, sickness, yes. the deterioration yes. of your health. And I remember yes. feeling this way and looking, but somebody in church telling me, yeah, brother, but your star is going to be huge in heaven. <laughs> and I look back at that now and I'm like, wow, what a load of shit. But that's but that drives right. I mean, can you talk a little bit more about health and just the connection to our body? Because yes, and I you know I mean I derive a lot of this just even that you know thinking to our you know to our indigenous brothers and sisters and fam that you know it's like we we're so much in our head in Western society that the body just gets completely forgotten. And I'd be curious to know a little bit more about what your thoughts on some of that is. Absolutely, yes. So that's another issue that I would say I take with the American Christian industrial complex. <laughs> <Just like, laughs> right, right. Is that it is, it's all about um, disembodying yourself. I and mean, I'm just going to say that about beyond Christianity. Let's just talk about American culture, uh, American white dominant culture. It's about, yeah, always seeking to, to be... Um, to see ourselves as let's let's make that clear to see ourselves as logical yeah as if that's all there is or that we somehow can just be logical um <laughs> to see ourselves as objective as if that's even possible um and these kinds of things where we're stripping back other elements of what it is to be human right so may that be may that be emotions but let's also just talk about the fact that we have a body and i remember um I remember in the church what a whether it's uh, whether it's outright or subliminal this message that the body is really not to be trusted and the body is really the such a location of sin or such a the, the location of <laughs> trouble yes, right it's like yes. don't listen to that body right um, that body will steer you wrong and yes the flesh uh, yes right and it's just <laughs> it's amazing to what I've been learning through somatics which I also want to say, um, again, it's a growing field and the people at the head of it who are, you know, really making it what it is are white folks and they're primarily men. But what some, I think somatic, what I know about somatics is that it's, it's true roots, it's true heritage is in cultural practices and indigenous practices that understand that the body, mind, soul connection is always there, that those things cannot be separated, Mm. that we can't say that we're just doing something with one element of who we are, that all of us is always at the table, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. We are whole and holistic and we can't separate that. Um, And, and yeah, I don't know, (laughs) maybe rambling, but I, I just think about, again, going back to my particular struggles and you know, I remember getting premarital counseling and that came to the part where they talked to us a little bit about sex, you know, and I had just a little (laughs) bit, right? So you're going to do this thing probably once you're married and we ought to talk about it. And I remember having questions and I remember them not, them, not this couple, not knowing what to do with our questions, what to do with my question. And some of my questions was like, Hey, I think I have trauma in this area. And Mm. I just want to know, like, how do I, how, what do I need to know going in that will help me so that doesn't become an issue for us? And they just did not know what to do with that. And um, which, you know, obviously I'm not saying everybody would even have those answers, but just this idea that like 
sex bodies these are not things that the church handles very well that no. they don't get approached nearly enough and yet a lot of people's struggles are in those areas and health included you know but um yes i i'm of the mind that well i don't even have to be of the mind the science shows it okay so our bodies send information to our brains more than our brains send information to our bodies. We are not a floating head. This is not a computer that um, is all driven by a logical element of who we are. That's just not true. That's only one portion of our brain. And the truth is your body is like this incredibly intelligent. I mean, think about if you've ever had someone come up behind you and unexpectedly and your whole body jumps yeah. your whole body yeah. it's like every muscle gets activated you didn't choose for those muscles you didn't tell them to do that right they, they were a few split seconds ahead of your brain and they knew that that's what they needed to do because in that moment that could have been mm. some kind of danger that you needed to get out of the way of and so there's that's just one little example of the ways in which our bodies are always collecting information about our environment, about whether it's safe, about whether we are where we want to be, whether we're truly in alignment from our center. Um, I remember a teacher telling me, like, we talk about gut feelings mm -hmm. or heart or heart knowing, and we think those are just like nice metaphors. But the truth is that we have a nervous system and nerves that wrap themselves all around those regions and cells, you know, there that are a lot like brain cells and, and they're connecting right into our brain in such a way that we're, we are collecting information. They, our intuition is a real thing. This is not, we're not talking about magic here. We're talking about an intelligence and a wisdom within our body. Mm. And I also think about um, ancestors and mm. this, is, this is something too where I remember the Christian faith talked about ancestors as like, worship of some foreign god like thinking about thinking about where you came from with some type of <laughs> like participation in some pagan right. pagan faith or something but epigenetics a field of science now that's showing how much you know our ancestors are in our bodies literally right they're the dna yes. the imprint the imprint of their trauma is actually in our bodies and the things that they struggled with, we are susceptible to. And I'm not just talking about diabetes, but you know what I'm saying? Like that's, that's, a, that's a perfect metaphor for the ways in which trauma also kind of moves on. And um, the ways in which they coped even were mm -hmm. susceptible to those same ways of coping, whether that's dissociation um, or whatever it might be. But they live on in us and we're, we're left with what they didn't process, what they didn't manage to figure out in terms of their nervous systems, in terms of their mental health. Like we're left with that stuff. And yeah. so all this mystery where people are wondering, you know, why do I, why do I feel this way? Or why do I struggle in these ways? And, and if we're only looking for logic, if we're only looking for why well, I did the right things or I didn't, right. um, or if we think we can just talk it all away, like we're wrong. Our bodies are literally in the tissues where we're storing me memory. We have memories that are stored in particular locations in our bodies. We have emotions that find their way into different areas of our bodies and we can, we can find those and that's, that's one way we can, even without knowing the stories, we can heal, we can heal trauma. 
That's uh, I'm glad you brought up uh, epigenetics because I think that's something that I know for my therapist introduced me to that like over a decade ago, and I was just blown away by the even even the definition of what that means, right? Like holding on to that, and 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 for me, it's been quite the the role because it's like you know i don't know what's on my father's side right it's like i met the guy in 82 uh that was the last time i ever saw him uh i have no idea what happened in that lineage i know on my mom's side i've i've gotten a, a good understanding of that though i still have a lot of questions and whatnot i still have a i have an understanding but you know and just wondering like what happened yeah right in that and what in what honestly and what have i passed on you know to to my daughter mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. as a young woman right mm-hmm. and as a and you know and again just the effects of i always say that you know i i always show a, a power schema in in all of my classes right and you know and, and i list it from weakest to the strongest uh and this is by like charles keisling and you know other people's research and whatnot but it, they list it as physical like the, the physical is bad and that's powerful and right and we can talk to anybody who's ever been beat up or jumped or like you know that you know that thing of being or just being in a physically abusive any type of relationship but the strongest is ideological which is what i feel like we're seeing right now in this country Mm-hmm. other parts of the world but you know what i'm saying it's like we've lost a baseline for what truth is it's like no nah, that coronavirus is fake there's nothing <laughs> there's you know that's just that was just made up in a science lab and you know uh i'm not gonna wear a mask i don't have to wear a mask it's my god-given american right to not you know so it's like we have this ideological sense that also gets embedded right with faith and and religion and so i i'm wondering how do you navigate where we're at right now and maybe you haven't just because you know we were talking before the show (laughs) i'm like man there there's not a day that goes by that i don't think about leaving this country and moving some other place Um, i don't know where but I, i think about that very regularly you've had the, the, you know, you've had the, you know, the, the opportunity to do that. And so I'm just curious, like, how do you navigate some of these spaces with, with that? Or maybe you don't at all. I, I, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. do you mean specifically ideology as related to coronavirus or just it, well, it gets all, all the above, right? Yeah. Coronavirus, obviously you, you, you know, you were just sharing beforehand, you know, that, you know, you got hit with the, not hit with the coronavirus, but just the, the whole pandemic hit you and you were, you know, in a in a in a different country and whatnot but it yeah just just the ideolo- the ideology or just ideological tropes that that have i feel bounded us you know in in certain tribes you know you can just think about that and with faith right it's like oh well you know the baptist over here they got this yeah but these southern baptists over here they, they're they're the better ones it's like i grew up as a seventh day adventist and we just thought everybody was lost you know what I'm saying? because yeah. they didn't go to church on the right day. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, what you, what that brings to mind, I'll just say this. What that brings to mind is the power of shame, mm. the power of shame on our bodies, the ways in which we carry it in our bodies, the way in which it locks us up in, you know, we talk about, we talk about things like getting smaller or making ourselves smaller as a, a metaphor, but it's, it plays itself out physiologically. Our ideas, our ideas, we actually embody them. And you can see that kind of when you look at someone's posture. 
and you you can see the deflated posture and you can see the you can see a more confident person and where do they hold the you know where how are their abs activated or their back is sort of mm. straight and um they take steps confidently like body language is just such a an example of the ways in which our ideology also lives in our body and for people who live with shame or for people who live with um you know a lot of oppression or trauma it's you know you see it in the slumped shoulders you see it in the smaller voices you or you hear it right you hear it in the way a person's voice can be collapsed um or just small or just quieter um you 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 see it in the ways in which people move through space confidently or not or, or the way that even the way they hold their weight can be one way that you might see that people people's ideas can also be harming them or harming their capacity to connect whether that's connecting to uh, the creator or god or connect you know with spirit or with others with other people or with themselves and i think sort of that's at the heart of what i think i want to do in my work is to reunite people with their bodies and pleasure and when i say pleasure that having a really broad definition of of really just enjoyment of life how do we experience more color more music more laughter more joy more more of those delicious flavors those wonderful sensations what it is to be truly and fully alive how do we have more of that and i think when we live in a disembodied culture where you sit at the computer 10 hours a day with your body slumped in this one position and your hips locked into this chair and you're not moving or you go to this um church where like certain kinds of dancing are seen as wrong or you know or certain kind of music is just not okay or when we when we live in a world that says that your brain is really important and valuable and your thoughts are where the money is and everything else is just not that important um when we downplay the value of art of creativity of mm. movement of body of healing of health you know um of relationship when we when those things are lower on on our values list as a society you see how that impacts those first of all those people the people who i think were put on this earth to be healers and creatives and um and and you see not only their devaluation in terms of like economically we're not we're not putting money into those things and so those are those are not your wealthiest people those are not the people who are necessarily always thriving in the same ways maybe they're more often struggling with mental health or a sense of isolation or or whatever but i also think about like how all of us are meant to be creative and all of us are meant to move our bodies and all of us are meant to have joy and and more expression and that kind of thing um but we're not living this full spectrum color life necessarily because those things are not deemed valuable and not only are they not deemed valuable but in a lot of these spaces and again I'm thinking back to church there ta- there's this discussion it seems again not always direct sometimes it's indirectly but that says that suggests that these things are of lesser value that these things are actually not um what we need in our lives right that we need to be more logical that we need to be more fill in the blank with some kind of like masculine american value <laughs> right <sighs> which is just to me it's i'm starting to learn is not full living um i i i need i need the color i need the dancing i 
for me, yeah, I think about, I also think about, again, going back to like decolonizing your faith and how like, um, for example, drums mm. in, in, in the early church, right? Being seen as something that's not, something that's profane as opposed to <laughs> sacred, right? Just right. like the, the drums. Um, and how, because it connected to indigeneity, because it connected back to people's drum circles or, or maybe d- different forms of dance and spiritual ritual or, or sacred healing ritual where they use drums. And so it's there's this idea of like this foreign other that we should be scared of. And what are we learning now? Drums are part of a huge part of how we might regulate our nervous system. Mm. Beats and, and dancing that really engages a beat and moving your hips like you literally can unlock trauma just by the movement within the hips because of the vagus nerve um, and how it connects and and innervates your hip area, your pelvic area. Mm. So by moving this part of our body, we can actually be releasing stress and trauma. And some Mm. of these modalities today, uh, trauma release exercises are all about trying to get a sort of uh, a vibration in your hips. It's all about trying to get your spine to move in such a way so as to really release that tension that gets locked up in those areas. And I have to think like these indigenous cultures knew that. <laughs> they knew that. They didn't have the modern science, scientific ways that were measuring that and capturing that. And now we're valuing it as a society. And now we're able to make health insurance companies pay for it and have people, <laughs> you know, shelling out $300 a session to get it done or to go and have someone help you move your hips. But the reality is that these people, through their ancient or indigenous wisdom and technologies, they knew that already. They knew that. They were doing that. They made that a regular part of their lives in such a way so as to regulate their health, their systems, manage their stress, um, to essentially discharge those energies, that energy, that, na- you know, whatever it is, discharge, stress, anxiety, fear, overcoming, just the feeling that when we survive a hardship and you're holding that tension in your body and you just have to let it go, you have to release it. They knew that. They knew that and they did it. They listened. They were so in touch with their bodies at that time or in those places or even to today. The indigenous people are still alive. Today, those people are still so connected to their bodies through because their culture allows for that and honors that and values those things that they, that they naturally made those aspects part of their culture and their ritual and their way of being spiritual and healthy and alive. And today... We're adding, it's like we're peppering that in. We're learning how to start adding that in because Mm. we've stripped it away because Western um, Protestant, whatever you want to call it, culture has, has called all those things bad. And now we're just like science is allowing us to say, well, maybe there's something there, you know, is yoga demonic? Or maybe if you do the poses, it's good for your back, you know, like (laughs) (laughs) Um, when in reality, it's like, again, yoga, spiritual practice, not a form of exercise in its origination. And, and science is proving it helps with your heart rate variability. And it's a way that people can certainly start to heal trauma. And again, similar to what I was just talking about, it interacts with the vagus nerve in such a way as to release stress and, and trauma as well. So it's, you know, and there's just like, 
this just keeps happening. You can look at so many indigenous technologies, Qigong, um, the list goes on and on. And you can say, well, now we can measure it and now we can call it something. And and now we can say that it's important to be embodied. Mm. But that's also still a new message, right? I'm here to preach that message, but it's still a new message, yeah. uh, unfortunately. A new message to our culture, not, mm-hmm. to, not to everyone. Um, but yeah, that is that is the message I'm I'm really excited to preach. Right, it's that we're meant to live in these bodies to yeah. fully embody them. Our spirit and our body are not separate things. We need to stop separating them. Um, they they are they interact constantly, right? We they interact constantly. When we touch one another, we can actually heal one another. Mm. And I think some some faiths, right? The church I was a part of, the Vineyard, they believe that. They believe that, that through touch, the laying on of hands, you can pray, God will heal. But there's still this sort of like way that they conceive of that that's about, um, I'm just going to say this, that has always been in us. We can do that. We learn that as babies from our mothers, just putting our our heads on their chest. We Mm. learn to, to regulate our nervous system. That's how we know. You know, babies wouldn't survive without touch in those in those early months, and and they learn how to be healthy from that touch. And today, as adults, we can do that for one another, with eye contact, with touch, with affirming language, with with just letting me letting you know I'm here for you, right? These kinds of things actually activate elements of our nervous system and in our body, so as to heal us. Like they literally physiologically change us. And now we can measure that stuff. Um, but for too long, I think, and in many, too many places, ide- ideologies work against valuing those kinds of things and understanding that power that we have. That's amazing. I, and you're absolutely right. And because I, I think it's, as I'm listening to you talk, I think about just how much we have been taught and when i say we i would definitely say people of color um have been taught that you know our ancestral way or just you know the indigenous way of of living was evil was wrong was was not a a valid form right it's and it's and it you know this goes back to even like even what malcolm x had talked about right it's like you know who taught you to hate yourself like who taught you to you know to to hate where you've come from and i just think about you know again just the power of colonization and mm-hmm. and uh and how those things get warped um yeah. what uh what do you got going on right now what's what's giving you life um i know you said you're completing uh, this this degree program uh but where do you where do you see yourself moving forward yeah yeah, so I'm still, uh, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm still sorting out what it is in this work, where exactly my niche is. And what's, what's arising really organically is it's kind of what I told you is this idea that how do we reunite with our bodies and, and unite with them maybe for the first time for a lot of folks and, and align with them in such a way so as to live more fully. And... Um, as I'm doing that, I'm so I'm building a business and I'm, I'm already taking clients and kind of starting to to work out where my space is. And I really think there's something for me about folks who are just here 
um, in the United States uh, as of a few generations. So first, second, and third generation Americans and the very unique um, very unique stressors, traumas, challenges faced by folks who are you know, transitioning into this culture from another culture, um, particularly people of color, but really anyone who's not, uh, who's not accustomed to some of the values and the value systems we have here and the ways in which work is placed above relationship and the ways in which life is just not yeah, I don't want to criticize too much, but I just, I'll just i just say this, that um, for everyone I've known who's either an immigrant or a child or a grandchild of an immigrant, they know that struggle where joy is not a priority. Joy is not, where survival is so much the name of the game, so much the center of focus, that there's, there's always some kind of challenge, whether that's in relationship, to prioritize relationships, or just to be able to enjoy the pleasures of life, to enjoy what it is to be alive. Um, and so some of what I'm doing is exploring, you know, how do I continue to use um, my experiences and my story to to unpack that in and of like in myself and, and also continue to figure out how do we how do we do that together? How do I give that back? And so I think I'll be leading a workshop on play and the value of play um, to being a whole person and next month. I just did uh, one last month on somatics and how they relate to social justice. Um, so I think I want to do that. And I think I'd like to build a community space. So I'm, I'm per that's percolating in my mind right now of like, what does it look like to have an ongoing space where people can practice and learn um, and rebuild that connection with their, themselves and, and live more fully and more colorfully. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I love it. I, I think uh, I, I, I love what you bring, which again, which is one of the reasons why I was like, OK, I got a key on the show because this what you're doing is, I think, right in there with because it's it's interesting. And I'll say this, you know, it's easy. I'll speak for myself it, it, it to decolonize to the point where it's like you've sanitized and just taken away everything. And so it's just like, well, no, faith is still part of my life and, and a connection. It, I'm, I'm still trying to construct what that looks like in a decolonized manner. And I think this, what you're talking about here, is definitely in line um, with that. Because, it, 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 again, it's about the you know embodiment and re-embodiment, and re really, and re-getting acquainted. Because, like you said you know, earlier, it's like, you know, we're, we're told to distrust our bodies. We're told to not... <laughs> you know, allow it. And, and, and I know, again, growing up, it was just like, you can't listen to the flesh, you know, the flesh is weak. Right. And so, um, you know, even to the point of, of, of saying the certain respects of, of the translations of the Judeo-Christian Bible, uh, have been mistranslated. Um, I always question why Paul got so many damn books to begin with. It sounds like he was very sexually repre repressed and just how he spoke and how he wrote. Um, and again, that tends to just get under people's crawl. But I appreciate the folks who've been able to come out and be able to to see that because I feel like then we're able to, like you said, enter into, into more of that mystery, right, mm -hmm. of who uh, God is. Um, where can folks find you? Where can they connect with you? You know, maybe somebody's listening right now and it's just like, man, I got a key out. 
we you know we'll go and put her on on a, on on a per diem you know six figure <laughs> per diem you know get it get them out and, and then hook them up yeah well right now i'm just i'm just keeping it on instagram for a little bit low-key as i'm working out my website um so on instagram i'm pleasure active that's it at pleasure active Great. And I'll put all these in the show notes for those who are I'm not sure why all my bad things just decided to beep all of a sudden. But I'll put all these in the show notes for for folks um, and, you know, check key out what they're doing and in the material. And I I will say I love your your your, your Instagram posts. I, uh, you know, sometimes you put some puts you put some amazing quotes in there in the in the stories. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hodge. Well, thank you so much for coming out. And uh, I would definitely going to have to get you back on. I've, as you were talking, I was already almost even thinking, again, I think in academic stuff. I was only thinking, man, I got to get you on a panel. I want to get you out to classes. So we'll have to get you back. And uh, I'll see if I can get you paid as well. Okay. Well, I would love to be back in conversation with you, Dr. Hodge. This has been a pleasure. Really.